as I was just uh, putting the finishing touches on the study that we're going to be doing together this evening, I don't know if any of you saw, but uh, this morning uh, in Egypt, uh, ISIS set off two bombs in Christian churches and killed dozens of people who were at Palm Sunday services worshiping today. And uh, you see that and you don't know what to say. What is the hope that we have? And this may sound over simple, but I believe the hope that we have is simply that everything we believe is real, that there really is a heaven, that there really is a God who loves his people as his sons and his daughters, that it really is true that the world is not always going to be like this, that it really is true that the day is coming when all things will be made new. That's really true. And the passage that we're gonna be studying today is one of the most incredible passages in the Bible because it actually proves to us that we can trust the word of God. And so when the world is crazy and can seem hopeless at times, I take great hope uh, in the assurance of the word of God that the hope that we've based our whole lives on is not a hope that we've placed it in in vain, but that this is real and God is real and all the things that he has promised are really going to come to pass. So the book of Daniel, is divided in half by theme. The first half is the historical autobiography of Daniel's time in Babylon, and it covers one major event per chapter across several decades. And this part of the book includes accounts like Daniel's famous run-in with the lion's den. The second half of the book of Daniel records dreams and visions that Daniel received from God which prophesy the future. And some of these future events have already unfolded exactly as God said they would, and we can look back at them as history today. But some of these prophecies deal with events that are yet to come and are unfolding before our very eyes today. Last week we looked at the first part of Daniel 9 and one of the greatest prayers in the Bible. While reading through the book of Jeremiah the prophet, which is also in our Bibles today, Daniel discovered the terrible evil that Israel had been involved with over a 490 year period of time. Evil that God dealt with by allowing Israel to be conquered by the Babylonians, which caused Daniel to end up as a captive in Babylon as a young teenage boy. Daniel also discovered that God had promised their time in Babylon would be fixed at 70 years and then Israel would be released from their captivity. And we saw Daniel's incredible response to all of this. He fasted and he prayed to the Lord, repenting on behalf of himself and his people for their sins. This week, God is going to respond by telling Daniel, you've been reading about 70 years, but I want to reveal to you a mystery about 70 weeks. And Daniel, it concerns the entire future destiny of your people Israel. So let's jump in. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 9, verse 20. It says, Now while I was speaking, underline the word while, while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication, that just means my requests before the Lord, my God, for the holy mountain of my God. Yes, while, underline that word again, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, that's the angel Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, 
being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. So while Daniel is wearing sackcloth and ashes, while he's fasting and praying, while he's confessing sin and repenting, the angel Gabriel appears, who had also appeared to Daniel back in chapter 8. And I couldn't help but notice that the Holy Spirit seems to have made Daniel emphasize the word while by repeating it twice. And I believe it's because it's simply a good reminder that if you or I are seeking guidance or direction or insight from God, we need to make sure that we're giving him a time when he can speak to us. While it's true that God can interrupt our lives at any time and speak to us any place, 99% of the time, we're only able to hear him when we set aside time to listen. The issue may not even be that God only speaks when we're listening, it may be that we only hear when we're listening. And we often are only able to hear God when we set aside a time to listen. So make this note on your outlines. We're most likely to hear from God when we make time to listen. We're most likely to hear from God when we make time to listen. I don't know how it is in your life, but it, it's so easy to fall into the trap of saying, I really need to hear from God on this in my life. And so I've talked to other mature believers, I've uh, shared with other people my frustration that I haven't heard from the Lord, but I haven't actually set aside any time to just ask the Lord and then listen. I haven't gone for a walk and given him space and time to speak to me. We also notice that Daniel says Gabriel came to him about the time of the evening offering. That's a reference to the offering that would have been made at the temple in Jerusalem every evening. However, at this time, we know the temple is destroyed and Jerusalem's in ruins, but Daniel is still functioning on God's clock, so to speak. And it's just one more little detail that reveals Daniel's character. Even though he's not in a godly environment, He's going to use godly things as his reference points in life. For the Christian, for you and I, God is our reference point in all things. Not culture, not society, not the media, not even the community that we live in. God is our reference point. And this is something the Western church is struggling to remember in this day and age, is that God and his word are our reference point, not anything else going on around us. God's our reference point and he was for Daniel. Let's look at verse 22. And he, that's Gabriel, informed me and talked with me and said, O oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to, and then underline the word, understand. I've come to give you skill to understand. So what Gabriel is coming to tell Daniel is something Daniel is meant to understand. And while we can't delve into it, I can just give you a little clue that if you'll study what Jesus said as he wept over Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the day we're celebrating today, if you study what he said as he weeps over Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, you will come to the conclusion that Jesus expected all Israel to know and understand the prophecy that we're gonna be studying today as well. And I suggest to you that we're expected to understand it as well, which is why we're studying it. Verse 23, Gabriel says, at the beginning of your supplications, as soon as you began praying, the command went out and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. I have that underlined. You are greatly beloved. 
We talked before in this series about how God uses prophecy in the Bible to prove that he is God and prove to us that the Bible really is his word. But why does God share prophecies with people who won't even be alive when these things take place? Why does God share with us, the church, things that will unfold when we're not on the earth, when we've been taken away in the rapture? Why does God share his future plans with us? It's because he loves us and so he doesn't want us to be in the dark about what he has planned for the world and our eternity. God doesn't owe us an explanation but he chooses to bless us by letting us in on his plans so that when it seems like the world is falling apart, we can go to the word of God and be reminded, no, wait a minute, everything is right on schedule. And just as everything else that he said has come to pass, everything that he says is yet to come will also come to pass. The Lord shared prophecy with Daniel because Daniel was greatly beloved by God, Gabriel says. And so are you and I. That's why Jesus chose to share things with you and I like this. I'll just read to you from John 14. Jesus said to his disciples, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. The Lord loves us and prophecy is one of the ways that he demonstrates that love toward us. So how does Gabriel tell Daniel that we should respond to prophecy from the Lord? Well, let's keep reading. Gabriel says, therefore, consider the matter, underline that, and understand the vision. I commend you because that's why we're here this evening. One of the main reasons we've gathered is to give our attention and focus to the Word of God that we might gain understanding from it, that we might consider this matter. And this is so important because it speaks to anybody who would say, well, these sort of things in the book of Daniel, they're, they're not worth your time. If you're a believer, you should be focusing on more practical things, things that are actually helpful. But the message that Gabriel gave from the Lord to Daniel was consider the matter. Consider the matter and understand it. Speaking of understanding, there's a concept we need to be clear on before we dig into this prophecy. You and I are going to see the word weak show up a whole lot in the next few verses. The Hebrew word that's used there is shavue, shavue. It means a period of seven. In numerology, it's called a heptad. In most of the world, we use the metric system except for America, nobody really knows what's going on there. But we use the metric system which is based on tens, 10 millimeters in a centimeter, 100 centimeters in a meter, 1,000 meters in a kilometer, and so forth. The Jews organized their world around heptads, sets of seven. And in this prophecy, we're going to find that the period of seven being referred to, and you can make a note of this, is seven years, seven years, seven years. It's the Jewish version of a decade. In the Jewish calendar, some of you will remember this, every seventh year, so the end of every Shavuot, the end of every heptad of years, was a Sabbath year, when the land was required by God to rest rather than be farmed, and then that cycle of seven years would start over again. Sets of seven, every seventh year is a Sabbath year. 
So wherever you see the word weak in these next few verses, you need to know it's referring to a period of seven years. And some of you will recall what we've talked about before, the principle of first mention, that if you go to somewhere in the Bible where something shows up for the very first time, you'll get some sort of valuable insight from that. And I put the reference on your Bible, you can look it up later, but Genesis 29 is the first place in the Bible that this term, Shavua, is used, and it's used to refer to a period of years. And if you study Genesis 29, it'll be really clear that this is talking about years, not weeks or days or months. So let's dive into verse 24, and let's see what Gabriel tells Daniel. I was going to have you underline some things, but I literally have all of verse 24 underlined. So you could mark that however you want in your Bibles. But Gabriel says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish, that means restrain, the transgression, to make an end of or to seal up sins to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. The actual phrase there is the most holy place. It's a reference to the holy of holies in the temple. So let's work through this. Seventy weeks are determined. So seventy weeks of seven years is how many years? That's 490 years, 70 times seven. So what it's really saying is 490 years are determined. That's a period of time that has been established by God. What for? For your people and for your holy city. Who are Daniel's people? The Jews. What is the city of the Jews? Jerusalem. So 490 years are determined for the Jews and for Jerusalem. So write this down. The subjects of this vision are the Jews and Jerusalem. The Jews and Jerusalem. And while this prophecy will build our faith, it's not a message that's for the church. This is a message for Israel. 490 years have been determined for the Jews and for Jerusalem to finish the transgression So really pay attention to what it's saying here. To make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So first things first, when we look around us at the world today, has sin come to an end? Has it been sealed up? Is there everlasting righteousness all over the earth right now? Is biblical prophecy finished, or are there still things that need to be fulfilled? The answer to all of these questions is no. So we can determine, write this down, that at least part of what this prophecy speaks of is yet to come. At least part of what this prophecy speaks of is yet to come. It's going to be in the future. If you're a scholar of the Bible, let me ask you, when are all those things going to take place? When will sin on the earth be ended, transgression restrained, righteousness reign on the earth, and prophecy be fulfilled? When's that going to happen? It's going to happen in the millennial kingdom. After the second coming, when Jesus returns to the earth with his church to rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years. So we know that when this prophecy is completed, The second coming will have taken place and Jesus will be ruling and reigning on the earth. That's going to be the the end point of this entire 70 weeks. In verse 25, Gabriel keeps speaking and he says, Know therefore 
and understand that from, underline the word from, the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, and then underline the word until, until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Speaking of Jerusalem, Gabriel says, the street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. So what Gabriel does now is he divides the 70 weeks. So verse 24 is the overview. Gabriel is saying, here is a prophecy for you, Daniel. It concerns a span of time of 70 weeks, 70 Shavuot, 70 weeks of seven years. And he divides it now into two sections. He speaks first about a section of 69 weeks, although he says it in a very strange way. He says seven weeks and 62 weeks. Why does he say it like that? Well, it was just a weird way of speaking at the time. Sort of like how at the Gettysburg Address, Abraham Lincoln began his speech by saying four score and seven years ago. You go, why didn't he just say 87 years ago? Well, it's just some sort of classy way of speaking that was impressive back then at the time. So Gabriel divides the 70 weeks of this prophecy into two sections. A section of 69 weeks, which leaves a section of one week. 69 weeks and one week. So in verses 25 and 26, Gabriel is going to address the period of 69 weeks. So let's look at verse 25 again. He says, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. That word from tells us that's our starting point. It's the beginning of the 69 weeks, so it's also obviously the beginning of the whole 70 weeks as well. And what a fantastic starting point it is. For while Jerusalem lay in ruins at this moment in history, Gabriel tells Daniel, listen, the moment is coming, the day is coming when a command is gonna be issued to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And that command, that decree being issued is going to mark the starting point of this 69-week time period. Shortly after Cyrus the Great and his Medo-Persian Empire conquer the Babylonians, Cyrus issues a decree releasing the Jews from captivity in Babylon. He even goes as far as offering them financial incentives to return to their homeland, and he generously contributes funds and resources to help with the rebuilding of the temple. However, only around 50,000 Jews take him up on the offer. Many of them have been born in Babylon during those 70 years, and Babylon's their home, and a lot of them say, this is the most advanced, best city in the world. Why would we leave? So only around 50,000 return to Israel around the year 538 BC. It takes them until 516 BC to rebuild the temple. However, there are hostile forces and people groups around the area of Jerusalem that intentionally prevent the Jews from rebuilding the walls of the city. And in those days, you had absolutely no security if your city didn't have walls. Anybody could come and raid or rob you at any time. And so Israel's enemies were constantly attacking them and raiding them every time they would try to get going on building these walls. 
So why is this a problem? Well, because in the prophecy, Gabriel specifically says the decree is gonna be issued and the walls are going to be rebuilt as a result of this decree. So you fast forward to the year 445 BC. There's a Jewish man serving as the cupbearer and friend of the king of the world at that time in the fortified Persian city of Susa. The Jewish man is Nehemiah and the king is Artaxerxes I, king of Persia. Nehemiah has known about the state of Jerusalem for some time, but he gets a fresh report from his brothers that the city still has no walls and no gates. It's still being bullied and raided by surrounding people groups. And this just devastates Nehemiah, who loves the Lord, loves the Lord's people, and loves the Lord's city of Jerusalem. And so he prays, he repents on behalf of his people, and he asks God to work a miracle and cause the walls of Jerusalem to be rebuilt. And that story is documented in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. And in chapter two, verse one of that book, we read this. You can turn there or I'll read it to you. Nehemiah chapter two, we read, and it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. You see, Artaxerxes was apparently a believer in the power of positive thinking because if you were sad in his presence, you would be executed. Sort of like the company that says, firings will continue until morale improves. It was that sort of idea. Then we read, therefore the king said to me, why is your face sad since you're not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid. He's afraid because the king has noticed he's sad. But fortunately, Nehemiah is a friend of the king. And said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? Then the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. This is a very quick God help me kind of prayer. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, that's the province where Jerusalem was located, to the city of my father's tombs that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me and I set him a time. And so Artaxerxes, to make a long story short, issues the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, specifically including its walls and its gates. Back in verse one, Nehemiah told us this took place in the month of Nisan, and that's simply the month that we would call March. And in that same verse, Nehemiah notes that it was the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes I. Secular history has established that as the year 445 BC. Secular historians have also delved into archaeological evidence, manuscripts, and all other kinds of boring things, and have managed to pinpoint the exact day that Artaxerxes I issued that decree on behalf of Nehemiah. That date, and you can write this down, was March 14th, 445 BC. March 14th, 445 BC. And so we know from history that the starting point of these 69 weeks was March 14th, 445 BC. As we keep reading the prophecy in verse 25, we read until Messiah the Prince. 
there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. That word until, just like the word from, that word until now gives us our ending point of these 69 weeks. And what are we told is going to happen at the ending point of this prophecy? Messiah the Prince. Messiah, the promised savior of the world, the one talked about hundreds of times in Old Testament prophecies, the one who would take away the sins of the world, that Messiah is going to be revealed. That's quite a prophecy, that's quite a prophecy. The starting point is going to be the issuing of a decree to rebuild Jerusalem, including its walls. The ending point is going to be the appearance, the revealing of Messiah. And the time in between those two things is going to be exactly 69 weeks. 69 weeks of seven years, which is 483 years in total. It's gonna be 483 years between those two events. And if we want to turn those years into days, we have to remember that all of God's prophecies, God's clock functions on the Hebrew calendar, which uses 30-day months. Every single month of the year on the Hebrew calendar is 30 days long, meaning a year is exactly 360 days, always. So if we take those 483 years and we multiply it by 360 days, that gives us exactly 173,880 days. So we have 69 weeks, 483 years, 173,880 days. So if we go all the way back to our starting point, the day Artaxerxes I issued the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, March 14th, 445 BC, and we count ahead in history exactly 173,880 days, we come to April the 6th, 32 AD. Now what's so significant about that date? Well, that is the day, to the day, that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey and publicly presented himself as Messiah to the people, the King of the Jews, for the first time, it's the day we call Palm Sunday, which is today, which Christians around the world are celebrating. And yes, I planned this to line up years ago because I take this that seriously. So throughout his ministry, there were multiple times when people tried to grab Jesus. They got so excited about what he was doing. They tried to grab him and hoist him on their shoulders and have him lead a parade announcing that he was the new king of the Jews. And when you read the gospels, you find that over and over again, every time it happened, Jesus would simply slip away from them and he wouldn't allow them to do that. He wouldn't allow them to crown him king. For example, in John six fifteen, we read, Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. So why doesn't Jesus let the crowd crown him king of the Jews? Well, Jesus explained more than once. In fact, he explains it to his own mother at the wedding in Cana when he turns the water into wine. He explains many times that it was because it was not yet 
his time. It was not yet the time for him to present himself publicly as Messiah. The Holy Spirit was telling him, not yet, not yet, not yet. Because you see, that had to happen on a very specific day in order to fulfill the prophecy that we're studying in Daniel 9. And on that day, that specific day, it is time and Jesus does ride into Jerusalem. He does publicly present himself as king of the Jews and in fact he orchestrates the entire thing. So make a note of this, the ending point of this 69 week prophecy was April the 6th, 32 AD. The ending point of this 69-week prophecy was April the 6th, 32 AD. This is incredible because it's not a complicated prophecy. It's very clear. The math isn't hard with a calculator. And it predicts to the day, the exact day that Jesus would appear in public as the Messiah, the Savior of the world. What is Gabriel's margin of error on this prophecy? It's zero. It's zero. He's not a day off. He told Daniel the exact day Messiah would be revealed. It is a verifiable, proven, fulfilled prophecy that is so specific and so impossible to fake. I always laugh when somebody will say something like, well, maybe Jesus was just taking advantage of the prophecy. And I'm like, he still couldn't have arranged to have been born exactly at that time, exactly in that place where all of this would line up. That was sort of beyond his control unless he's God. And it proves that the Bible has a supernatural origin. There's simply no other explanation. And I've shared before when we've talked about this, most people, including us, you know, we'll see on the History Channel or something like, Tuesday night, the incredible prophecies of Nostradamus. And we'll watch it and Nostradamus will be like, I saw two glowing lights flying into a mountain. And we'll be like, he predicted 9-11. This is unbelievable, this is mind blowing. And it's nothing, it's just nonsense, it's so vague. This is real prophecy specific to the day. And every time we do it, I find myself thinking, you know what? I don't think any of us, including me, have any idea how absolutely ludicrous this is, how incredible it really, really is. And if you'd like to get into even greater detail on the calculations and dating involved in this prophecy, it's all documented in Sir Robert Anderson's classic book, The Coming Prince. And I should mention as well, manuscripts of Daniel that contain this prophecy were found at Qumran among the Dead Sea Scrolls, dating to somewhere between 150 BC and 250 BC, as well as in a copy of the Septuagint that dates to at least 100 BC. Well, why is that significant? Because while we believe that Daniel wrote this hundreds of years before Jesus came to the earth, it's significant because there is physical archeological evidence on the earth today that proves this prophecy was written at least 150 years before the birth of Jesus. That's a big deal. This is 100% verifiable. And just to encourage you even further, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the 20th century. And when we started reading through them, one of the neatest things we discovered is that they contained essentially the exact same thing we have in our Bibles today. 
And the reason that's so affirming is it means that God preserved the integrity of his word across 2,000 years. It means that they were reading the same scriptures 100 years before the birth of Christ that we're reading today. They weren't corrupted. They made it through all the centuries intact. It's incredible, incredible, and that blesses me. The prophecy continues, and now it talks about what's going to take place during these 69 weeks, these 483 years in Jerusalem. So we have a starting point. We have an ending point of the 69 weeks. It says, the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. So the idea is Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt and it's going to stand. Jerusalem is going to stand all the way through these 69 weeks all the way up to 32 AD, even though things are gonna look shaky and dangerous at some points during those years, it's gonna still stand. And that's exactly what happened. Even though Jerusalem would be conquered by outside forces like Antiochus IV that we've studied, Jerusalem, its walls, its gates, and the temple would not be destroyed again until 70 AD. So to clarify, verse 24 is the overview of the entire prophecy of 70 weeks regarding the destiny of Israel and the Jews. Verse 25 covers the events that will mark the beginning and the end of the first 69 weeks. Verse 26 and 27 will cover the events of the 70th week. So why the division? Why 69 weeks, a division, and then a 70th week. What takes place between the end of the 69th week and the beginning of the 70th week? We're going to come cover some of that in verse 26. We read, and after, underline after the 62 weeks. That's actually a mistranslation. What Gabriel is referring to there is the seven weeks and 62 weeks, that whole time period of 69 weeks. So it really should read, and after the 69 weeks, after Messiah has been revealed, after the triumphal entry of Palm Sunday, after the 69 weeks have been completed, some things are going to take place before the 70th week begins. It says, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. One week after Palm Sunday, one week after Messiah the Prince was revealed, Jesus would be crucified on the cross. And the original Hebrew word that's used there for cut off is kareth, kareth. It can mean cut off or cut down, something like that, or it can mean killed. And when it's used to mean killed, it means specifically killed for the purpose of a covenant. A covenant is just another word for an agreement. And in the Old Testament, one of the ways men would seal a covenant, because this is perfectly logical, was to kill an animal, cut it in two, and then both walk between the two pieces. It's really weird to us, but to them it meant their covenant was as serious as blood. They would rather die like the animal than break the covenant that they had made. When Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't, as we just read, for himself. It was for us. It was to offer you and I a blood covenant. Jesus said, I would rather die than have you not be a part of my family. And the covenant he offered us was this, that he would live a perfect life in our place. He would die in our place. He would take the punishment for our sins and he would conquer death by rising from it all in our place. That's what he was offering. And our part of the covenant 
simply to believe in Jesus that he's done those things for us. And when you truly believe that Jesus has done that for you, the only way you can respond is to give your life to him. It's the only response. So write this down, the first major event after the 69 weeks are completed will be the death of Messiah, the death of Messiah. Then we go on and we read, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. What's the city? It's Jerusalem. What's the sanctuary? It's the temple. So write this down. The second major event after the 69 weeks are completed will be the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And we've talked many times before about how this famously came to pass in 70 AD when Titus Vespasian and his Roman soldiers destroyed the temple brick by brick and leveled the city of Jerusalem. Now when it refers to the prince who is to come, it's a reference to Antichrist. And here's what's interesting. The verse tells us that those who would destroy the temple in 70 AD would be the people of Antichrist, the people of Antichrist. So what people destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD? The Romans. Meaning the people of Antichrist will be whom? The Romans. The people of that future revived Roman Empire we've talked about that is coming together even as we speak and we studied in our earlier chapters of the book of Daniel. It says the end of it shall be with a flood. Not a literal flood, but just a destruction that is as swift and devastating as a flood. And that's exactly what happened in 70 AD. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Desolations just means emptiness. So the destruction of Jerusalem will be swift and catastrophic, and in 70 AD it was, and the result of the destruction will be emptiness. And again, that's exactly what happened. The Jews fled from Jerusalem and Israel and scattered across the earth. It's such a well-known historical event. It's known by all historians as the diaspora, the scattering of the Jews all over the world. They went to Europe, they went to Africa, they went to New York, they went to Boca Raton, they went all over the place. And this verse says that Israel would stay desolate, it would stay empty till the end, till the end. Now most commentators say that the point of the verse is not the mention of war, but simply that Jerusalem and Israel would be empty of the Jews till the end. In 1948, the Jews return to the land and Israel becomes a political nation again. So what does that mean? It means we're at the end, it means we're at the end. And Jesus said in Matthew 24 that the generation that sees Israel become a political nation again would not die out before he returned. We're in that generation right now. I do also find it interesting though that it says Israel would be empty of the Jews till the end of the war. And this is just, just a personal observation here. It might be something, it might be nothing. But I find it interesting for this reason. What is the biggest war the world has ever seen? It's World War II. It's the biggest war the world has ever seen. Israel becomes a political nation in 1948, immediately following the end of World War II as a direct result of the Holocaust perpetrated against the Jews in World War II. So you can study that on your own, come to your own conclusions. I just thought that was interesting. In verse 27, it says, then 
then he. And the word then tells us we're now talking about something that's going to happen after Jerusalem and the temple have been destroyed. So we now know, looking back at history, this is something that's gonna happen after 70 AD, at some point after that. Then he, so how do we know for sure that the prince who is to come in the last verse is Antichrist? How, how do we know that? Well, because he continues to be the subject of the next sentence. He's the he in verse 27. If you study the grammatical structure, he is the prince who is to come, the subject from the previous verse. And we're told that he is going to do some things that we know Antichrist is going to do that nobody else has done yet since 70 AD. So you might wanna draw just a little arrow in your Bibles from the word he here in verse 27, pointing back to the prince who is to come in verse 26. It'll help you follow it. Verse 27, it says, then he, Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant, the literal word there is treaty, with many for one week, one week. Now because the subject of this prophecy is Israel and the Jews, the most logical assumption is that the word many includes the Jews. So how long is a week in this prophecy again? It's seven years, seven years. So now Gabriel's gonna talk about what is going to happen during the 70th week, the 70th week of Daniel as we call it. And we're told that what is going to mark the starting point of this 70th week will be Antichrist sealing a seven-year treaty of some sort with many people, including the Jews of Israel. Now because Revelation 6-2 introduces Antichrist as riding on a white horse, most scholars who share our view hold that this will be a seven-year peace treaty involving Israel, which means logically it would be between Israel and her enemies, the Arabs, which will pave the way for Antichrist's meteoric rise onto the world political stage, and it's also gonna pave the way for things like the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. So write this down, the starting point of the 70th week will be Antichrist confirming a seven-year peace treaty that will include Israel. A seven-year peace treaty that will include Israel. And so just to clear up your understanding of eschatology, of end times events, just make sure that you're grasping the starting point of the 70th week of Daniel. The starting point of the seven-year time period is not the rapture. It's not the rapture, that's not the starting point. It's Antichrist confirming a seven-year peace treaty. We know that the 70th week of Daniel is going to begin shortly after the rapture, but we also know from scripture that Antichrist isn't even going to be revealed until the church has been removed in the rapture. So there's going to be a period of time between the rapture and the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel, the seven year time period. Apparently it's gonna need to be enough time for this antichrist figure to gain enough political power to broker a peace deal of this size on the world political stage. So it could be several years between the rapture and the beginning of the seven years that make up the 70th week of Daniel. Then we read this, but in the middle of the week, how long is that? Three and a half years, three and a half years into the seven year peace treaty, something is going to happen. He shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. So understand with me here, we're told that the temple is going to be destroyed, Jerusalem is gonna be destroyed, and then in the prophecy it says then, which means after that. 
So in order for sacrifice and offering to come to an end, something has to happen that hasn't happened yet. The temple has to be rebuilt because that's the only place the Jews are allowed under their laws to perform sacrifices and offerings. That's how we know this isn't talking about anything that's already happened in history. Antichrist is gonna shut down Jewish worship at the halfway point of the 70th week of Daniel in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. And we know from other places in scripture that it's also at this time that Antichrist will set up an image of himself in that temple, declare himself to be God, and demand to be worshiped by the whole world. And the Jews, who may even believe up to that point that Antichrist is their Messiah, will suddenly go, we've made a huge mistake. We've made a huge mistake. It's a repeat of the prophetic pattern established by the actions of Antiochus IV in 167 BC, which we've studied in our previous sessions. And it is these specific actions by Antichrist that kick off the three and a half year time period known as the Great Tribulation. So write this down, halfway through the 70th week, so after three and a half years, the Great Tribulation will begin. The Great Tribulation will begin. So just to clear up some things that really will help your understanding of end times events, the rapture happens, the church is removed from the earth. Antichrist begins to rise to political prominence. He brokers a peace deal between Israel and her enemies. That marks the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. For three and a half years, that peace treaty holds. Most people think everything's going great. At that three and a half year mark, that's where the great tribulation begins. Antichrist reveals who he really is, demands to be worshiped as God, begins implementing things like the mark of the beast and killing everyone who won't worship him. Three and a half years of the great tribulation continue. They end with the second coming of Christ and he establishes the millennial kingdom on the earth for a thousand years. That's your rough sort of big, broad timeline there. It's probably good to write that out in your Bible in some way at a later date. Then we read this, that, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. So Antichrist is going to do awful things. He's going to make people and the temple desolate, empty. He will force people to make a decision to worship him or worship Jesus. And those who refuse to worship him will be beheaded. They'll be executed. Those who choose to worship him will be damned for eternity because making the choice to worship him will mean taking the mark of the beast, which the Bible says will be an irreversible decision. And the Bible also says that nobody is going to take that mark not understanding what it means. Everyone is gonna know the choice that they're making. So how long is this going to go on for? All this awful stuff that Antichrist is doing, it says even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Actually, it means the desolator, the one causing the desolation. So there's a determined time. There's three and a half years that Antichrist is gonna be allowed to do his thing. That's the great tribulation. After that, the Bible says Antichrist and the false prophet will be cast into the lake of fire. Satan will be imprisoned and restrained for the thousand years of the millennial kingdom when Jesus returns to the earth with us, his church, to rule and reign for a thousand years. So we have this time period of 69 weeks, then we have some major events that happen relatively shortly after the 69 weeks 
are finished. Messiah the Prince appears, that marks the end of the 69 weeks. After that, he is killed a week later, 70 AD, Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed. Then we have this huge gap of time that we're in right now before the 70th week of Daniel begins. So what is in that huge gap of time that we're in right now that does not concern the Jews or Israel? It's the church, it's the church. What we call the church age, that's when we're living right now. It's the time period between the birth of the church on Pentecost in Acts chapter two, 32 AD, the time period between the birth of the church in Acts two and the rapture, which is yet to come. And the Bible tells us that the church was a mystery in the Old Testament. You can't find the church unless you know what to look for in the Old Testament because God hid it from the eyes of the Jews. The Bible also tells us that because they rejected their Messiah, that right now in the church age, the Jews are under a spiritual blindness. That's why they can't recognize Jesus as their Messiah right now. And that blindness is gonna remain in place on the Jews throughout the church age. When the church is removed in the rapture and the church age is finished, God's focus on the earth moves intensely back to the Jews and the nation of Israel and that blindness begins to be lifted and the 70th week begins shortly thereafter. What's the result going to be? The Bible tells us that the Jews will turn to Jesus, recognize him as their Messiah and be saved. In fact, according to the Bible, that happening is prerequisite to the second coming of Christ, which means the Bible says that has to happen. Israel has to turn back to Jesus, welcome him as her Messiah. That has to happen before the second coming takes place and we return to the earth with Jesus at that second coming. I know that's a whirlwind of a prophecy, everything we've gone through today. And when we go through something like this, my goal and my hope is always to be as clear as possible so that we also have a good resource that if you want to, you can go back and listen to again, go through it as many times as you need to to really wrap your head around this. But I hope you're beginning to see why after studying the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel is so vital because it really rounds out your understanding of how all these things work together. And the reason we hold the views that we do regarding the end times is that our position is the only eschatology, the only belief system that fits everywhere in the Bible. It fits in Revelation, it fits in Daniel, it fits in the Olivet Discourse that was taught by Jesus in the Gospels, it fits in First and Second Thessalonians. It fits everywhere. And so whatever belief system you have regarding any piece of theology in the Bible, if it doesn't work everywhere in the Bible, then it doesn't work, period. And if you have any other position, people who say, well, I don't think that there really is a great tribulation, or people who say, well, I don't think there really is a millennial kingdom. I think we're in it right now. The problem is those positions clash with specific verses in the Bible. And you have to come up with an explanation that just doesn't make any kind of sense. So I love the fact that the more we study this, the more we see, the more clear it becomes. Daniel was coming to God at the beginning of all this with a valid concern. Israel's captivity in Babylon. But the Lord said, I heard you, Daniel, but I wanna to talk to you about something even bigger than that. 
I want to talk to you about the destiny of your people Israel all the way up to the end. And often we're so concerned, we're so fixated on a specific need that we have. And that one need becomes our whole world. We tie up everything in that and say, nothing else matters, just this one thing, God. This is the only thing right now. And Bible prophecy is so good for us because we need regular reminders of the big picture. You know, it's, it's sort of like having a, an incredible painting on the wall and you're standing one inch away from it and you're fixated on one brush stroke and then someone grabs you by the back of your shirt and pulls you back and you go, oh, right, there, there's a whole painting here. And we need God to do that in our lives and regularly remind us of the big picture, where everything is going, where we're going. And so I want to invite you to, to leave here this evening not overwhelmed by one issue in your life, but rather as the word says, having cast your cares upon Jesus and allowing yourself to be encouraged by the big picture of life. Because you know what the big picture is? The big picture is you belong to Jesus. You've been saved from death. And Jesus is coming for you very, very soon. And you're going to spend eternity with him in his presence, in a state of euphoria and glory and pleasure that we, we can't even put into words. Everything's not going to merely be okay. Everything is going to be amazing. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be perfect. We're part of the family of God, and for that reason and that reason alone, today is a good day. It's a good day. And I can say that regardless of what is going on in your life or in my life. Today is a good day. That's why Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Jesus could have just said, listen guys, don't sweat the small stuff. Don't get hung up on the small stuff. And what we do is we say, you don't understand, this is not small stuff. But Jesus would say, yeah, it is. It is small stuff. You know, even when the disciples said to Jesus, you know, well, well what, about, what about death? You know, what, what happens if we get killed for following you? Jesus' response even to that was, death? You guys are worried about death? It's like, don't. Don't be worried about a person who can kill the body. You should be more worried about the person who can kill the body and soul forever in hell. That was tactful, subtle Jesus responding there. But the message was the same. It was him saying, listen, however big you think that issue is in your life, compared to what Jesus offers us, compared to what we have in Jesus, small stuff, small stuff. Live for Jesus, live for eternity. Make your life decisions in light of eternity. Be encouraged by eternity, be strengthened by eternity. With that, let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that you don't owe us an explanation of what your plan is. But because you love us, you have pulled back the curtain in your word 
and reveal to us the incredible plans that you have for us, your people. Not only for us, but the incredible truth that even though they rejected you, you have not rejected your people. Because even when we are faithless, you remain faithful. For you cannot disown yourself. And so, Father, we thank you that you're not done with Israel because we marvel at your faithfulness in that. And we thank you that you're never done with us either, Lord. You're faithful all the way to the end. And Jesus, right now, we want to take you up on the invitation of your word to cast our cares upon you because you care for us. So, Jesus, we just release to you whatever the most pressing issue in our life and in our world is right now. Lord, we take a step back and we say, Lord, it's not really that big of a deal. Compared to you, compared to what we have in you, it's not that big of a deal. And I know that you're going to take care of me as you always do. Father, we ask that you would fix our eyes on the big picture, on eternity, and that whatever is going on, you would stir up within our spirits right now a heart full of gratitude, the joy of our salvation, that we have been saved We have a present and an eternity that is in your presence, God. Today is a good day. It is a good day. And we thank you for making that the truth. We love you for it, Jesus. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.